Well, after Easter, we'll return to uh, the book of James, but for Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the triumphal entry here in Matthew 21, and then I'll, we'll have an Easter sermon next week. But Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, hear now the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to your daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey in the cold and put on them the cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we pray that now by your spirit, all of us here would know who this is, who the person of Christ is. Teach us now from your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are 89 chapters in the Gospels, all four of them together. And of that 89, 24 and a half chapters are devoted to Passion Week. Passion Week accounts for a quarter of all that we learn in the Gospels. Uh, here, Matthew, Matthew 21 kicks off Passion, passage week, uh, Passion Week, that is, and the passage continues to chapter 28 for Passion Week total. That's about 25% of his gospel is committed to this one week. Mark 11 to 16 is devoted to it. That's about 37% of his gospel. Luke 19 to 24 is devoted to it, 25% of his gospel. And John 12 to 20, approximately 43% of John's gospel is devoted to this week. And so there is no question that... Passion Week is the most important week in the history of the world. And it begins on Palm Sunday. We know the story well. We tell it every year. And so I won't be exactly retelling it again this year. What I want to do this morning is answer the question that is asked in verse 10. We read there, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. They were, they were thrown into a frenzy, is the idea, saying, who is this? Who is this? It's an excellent question. It's an important question. It's a question that you'll want to answer correctly because your answer will determine your whole life. It'll determine your eternal destiny. And our passage this morning makes several vital truths clear about who Jesus is, who he is. And and I want to take a look at all six of them. I think I said seven. It's six vital truths. 
First, he is omniscient. That is, he is God. The second thing we'll look at is that he is Lord and Master. Third, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Fifth, fourth, he is the Davidic king. Fifth, he is the Savior. And then sixth, he is the promised prophet spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so we're going to look at those six first. Jesus is omniscient. He has perfect knowledge. We're told in verse 2 and 3 that Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And Jesus knew when he sent them in that they were immediately going to find a colt and the mother would be tied to a post. He knew that the cold had never been broken. He, he provides them with an answer that he knew would satisfy the curiosity of the owners as they walk up and start taking his animal. And he knew that the owners would give up the colt and its mother. Jesus knows all things. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He is omniscient. J.C. Ryle said, Go where we will and retire from the world as we may. We are never out of the sight. Of Christ. And that knowledge, that truth about who He is, should have two practical effects on your life. Two important truths. It should comfort you, but it should also constrain you. It should comfort you because you can be confident that there is nothing you endure, there is no problem that you're presently facing. No trial that you're dealing with that is unknown to Jesus. See, that is the confidence we have in in prayer, that he knows what we need even before we ask. Why? Because he knows all things. Someone said, if he knows the exact location of domestic animals, we can be sure that he knows our hearts. We can be sure that he knows our needs. We can be sure that he knows our concerns. We should be can be sure that he he knows our desires, our fears, our wants, our longings. He knows everything. And that is comforting for the believer. But it should also constrain you. There are no secrets with Jesus. Nothing hidden from his sight, alone or in company, by night or day, in private or in public. He is acquainted with all our ways. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether." And see, knowing that truth should constrain us from doing anything that would grieve our God. His omniscience should have a kind of a restraining, a holding back effect on our souls. We see this with children. We understand this principle. When mom and dad are watching, they're not reaching into the cookie bowl. When they turn their head, maybe. When young Drew was in school, when the teacher wasn't looking, he found it convenient to find the answers from his friends who were smarter than him. But if they were watching me, well, I did poorly. I failed. 
because I couldn't cheat. It restrained me knowing that they had their watching eye. Well, the sense of our Lord Jesus Christ's perfect knowledge that he knows all things should have that same effect. It should prevent us from doing things we otherwise would do, knowing that he is watching. He knows what we, we are thinking. He knows what we are doing. He knows all these things. And so it should give you pause before you engage in a sinful activity. It should give you pause before you break his commandments, before you grieve his spirit. And so you're to live your life, your whole life, in the light of the knowledge that he knows all things, that he is Lord. Nothing escapes his knowledge. And that leads us to our second truth. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our Lord and Master. When he was asking for the animal, Jesus told the disciples, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. See, as master of the universe, Jesus owns all things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, says Psalm 24.1. Every animal of the forest is his, and the cattle on a thousand hills, says Psalm 50.10. That, that donkey was his, and now he wanted it, and so he took it, and that's what he wanted. And one writer said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We are simply custodians of what already belongs to him, including our lives, by the way. See, do you live your life that way? When he asks for your time, do you say, here it is, Lord? When he asks for your talent, do you say, Here, here's my talents, Lord, take them, they are all yours? When he asks for your money, for your possessions, do you say, Here, Lord, all is yours? It all belongs to you. That's what the, the owner of this cult did. It was his possession. They approached him, said, The Lord needs it, and he gave up everything at once. And that's what we should do. We should do the same because Jesus is Lord. And so that's the second thing we learn here, that Jesus is Lord and Master. Third, look, Jesus is the film fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, whole, the whole book of Matthew is meant to prove this. Um, Matthew is written with a Jewish audience in mind. And, and so to persuade the Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, he shows them how Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament. It all points to him. He says in Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill. He says this in Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill. Then was fulfilled, Matthew 2.17. What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, Matthew 2.23. And he goes on in Matthew 4, Matthew 8, Matthew 12, Matthew 13 twice. He says it in our passage here, chapter 26 and chapter 27. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It all points to him. From Genesis 1.1 to Malachi 4.6, it all leads to Jesus. He is the, uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And, and the prophecy that he fulfills here on Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, is from Zechariah 9.9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast 
of burden. That's verse 5. Christ fulfills that biblical prophecy, which leads us to the next truth about Jesus. It says it in that prophecy. Jesus is king. The quotation in verse 5 does not appear in Mark or Luke. John mentions it, but he doesn't emphasize it. But understand, Matthew, again, remember, context, context, context. He's writing to the Jews, and, and his gospel is the gospel of the messianic king. And, and so that's what he zeroes in on when Jesus enters the capital city, that he is the rightful king of Israel. And what a king he is. He, he, notice what it says. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's the people's king. He's your king. He's, he's not coming as the conquering tyrant. He comes for the benefit of the people. He comes to them and, and he comes for them. One writer said he doesn't come on a warrior's steed to conquer them. He comes as their king for their benefit. And, and notice that it says he comes humbly. Or another translation, gently. This is what the picture of him riding on the donkey shows. Kings have ridden donkeys in the past. Uh, uh, David appointed Solomon to be his successor as the king of Israel, and he, he, he seated him on his personal mule. And, and so that happened in the past. Yet riding on the colt, as Jesus did, symbolized that his was going to be a gentle, gracious reign, that he was coming in peace, not for war. That he was coming um, to bless, not to oppress. He was coming to set you free, not to place you into slavery. He, he, he comes to be gracious, not as a judge. And I hope you catch the irony of it all. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of the universe. This is Christ, the one who sits on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God. And yet he comes to his people seated on a beast he didn't own. There was no bridle. There was no saddle, only garments spread over the colt's back. What is it? It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of gentleness. It's a picture of a king who cares about his subjects, who's concerned with their well-being. And let me just say this. Now is the time to embrace that king, this king, King Jesus. Why? Well... I mean, he's gracious and gentle, and so you may be saying, why do I need to bother? I mean, he's going to be nice to me. That's the kind of king you just described, and, and that is true. But a day is coming, a day is coming when this king, King Jesus, goes to battle. He goes to battle when his gentleness will not be seen, but a, a, a mighty warrior will be revealed, as if the picture's a lamb and a lion. You understand that. He was a lamb when he came, but he's going to return as this lion. In Revelation 19, we're given a symbolic picture of this return. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh a name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, when he returns, when this gentle king returns, he will no longer be meek and mild. And, and so don't let his gentleness, as revealed in our passage, don't let his humility, as we understand from his first coming, fool you into thinking that he will not be returning as the warrior king. This is why Paul says today, now, today is the day of salvation. Why? Because another day he may come again. And when he appears the second time, it's going to be too late. There'll there'll be no more negotiating. There'll be no more bowing the knee and, and receiving his mercy. You will bow the knee and receive his judgment. And so today is the day for you to embrace the gentle and peaceful King Jesus. And then you won't have to face the wrath and the fury of the warrior king. So Jesus is king. Well, he is also not just king, but specifically the Davidic king. Look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and have followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the children shouted in the temple the same thing in verse 15. Jesus just isn't just any king. It's just not an image for him. He is, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the king. He fathers his throne of David. He follows on the, he sits on the throne of his father David. It was announced at his birth, if you remember. And when he was born, he, was, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, we're told. And now here at the end of his life, we hear it again. Hosanna to the son of David. See, the mighty failed to recognize him as the son of David because Satan blinded their eyes. But do you remember the story of, uh, of blind Bartimaeus? It's in Mark 10. He, he was physically blind. He could not see. Uh, but but he, he saw Jesus for who he is. And so Jesus comes and he, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They tried to quiet him. They didn't want him to yell out. And he yelled louder and louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus responds. We're told in Mark 10, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That must be our cry. We're blind. We're born blind in this world. We cannot see God for who he truly is. And we must cry out for mercy. Son of David, King Jesus, have mercy on me. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. And see, if you do, if you look to Jesus, if you trust Christ, he will open up your spiritually blind eyes so you will see the everlasting reality of his kingdom. You will know him as the Davidic king. Well, fifth, he's the savior. Verse 9, we read, 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in verse 11, the crowds called him Jesus. Hosanna and Jesus. Both words come from the same Hebrew word, which means to save. And so the crowd was in effect saying, Jesus, Savior, save us, we pray. Jesus, Savior, save us, we pray. Now, it was a spontaneous outburst of praise, but those words are not arbitrary. It's not like they would have just shouted something else that it maybe meant the same. They're, they're literally taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is what Psalm 18 says, 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is the last of six psalms that are known as the Egyptian halal. It's Psalms 113 to 118. Halal means praise, and these were the psalms that were sung at all the great Jewish festivals. And the Feast of Dedication, they would sing them, at the Feast of New Moons, by families, um, at the yearly observance of the Passover. And at the Passover, two of the psalms were sung before the meal, and four were sung afterwards. In fact, to understand that these were probably the songs that were sung by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room just before he was arrested and crucified. Now, remember, Jesus enters Jerusalem when? What is it? What's the festival? It's Passover week. At the very time that Jesus is entering the city, thousands upon thousands of Passover lambs were being brought into the city only later to be killed for the sins of the people. And so it's only natural that the Hosannas of Psalm 118 were on the people's minds. But what may not have been on their minds and what they may not have understood is that, yes, as these lambs were coming in, they were crying out, save us. They were crying out our sins to be, for their sins to be covered because the lamb, the blood of the lamb. But they didn't realize that Jesus was entering And he is the Passover lamb. They wouldn't have seen it. And this connection may have been missed by them. But it shouldn't be missed on us today, living after the resurrection. These words of praise describe the very thing Jesus was doing and was about to do that week. He came in the name of the Lord to do the will of the Lord. And what he was sent to do was save his people from their sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no need for other lambs to be sacrificed. He is the Lamb of God. See, the the crowds were probably looking for a military leader of some sort. They wanted the warrior king. They didn't understand the two comings of the Messiah. But Jesus came lowly on a donkey, not to conquer nations at the time, but to conquer the hearts of men and women and pay the penalty of their sin. He came. He came to save you, not from the yoke of a, of a tyrant nation, but from the heavy yoke of your sin. See, the cry of Hosanna must be the cry of your heart. Jesus, save me. Jesus, Savior, save me. There's no other Savior. 
There's no other Savior. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, says Acts 4.12. No other name. Nowhere else to turn to be saved from God's wrath. Jesus is the only name that saves. Who is this? Who is this? The crowd asked. The answer was on their lips. This is Jesus. This is the Savior. This is the Passover lamb. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is the people's king. And Jesus is the people's Savior. And now sixth, he's their prophet. Verse 10 and 11 This one they recognized. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He called him the prophet. And when they referred to the prophet, they're referring to a promise made and a prophecy given back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses gives this, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Jesus is that prophet. In fact, as Hebrews says, he's greater than Moses. And so he's not only the fulfillment of the message of the Old Testament prophets, he's also the quintessential prophet. He is a prophet. And what that means is that we must listen to him. It's not an option. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? The Father, the Heavenly Father declared, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. Listen to Him, Luke 9, 35. There are the words of Deuteronomy 18. Jesus comes at God's initiative. He comes with God's authority. And He brings God's message. And so if we're going to know God and know ourselves correctly, we must hear him speak. We must listen to him. And his voice is heard in his words as they're found in the scripture. Written down for us in the word of God. They are spirit, truth, and life. You may have noticed. I'll close with this. That these last three points correspond with what we often confess when we use the Ligonier Statement. Uh, of Christology. Here is, he is our prophet, priest, and king, we say, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. That's what we learned here in our passage this morning. In different order, he's the king, we said, who reigns on high and rules our hearts. He is a priest. That is, a priest is the one who stands between God and man. He's our savior. He died for our sins and, and presently intercedes for us. And he's a prophet. Jesus speaks to us today through the pages of Scripture. That's our hope. That's our comfort, that Jesus Christ is the final prophet, the great high priest, and the conquering king. That's who he is. We're going to look at other things that he is next week. Uh, but, But the answer to the crowd's question, who is this, is found there. And so let me raise and end with this. Who do you say he is? I mean, do you agree? I I yell a lot. I mean, but is it true? Do you agree? Do you believe he is omniscient? That is, that he is God. Do you believe he is your Lord? He is the master. Do you believe that he is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament? Do you believe that he is the Davidic king? Do you believe that he is your savior? Do you believe he's the promised prophet of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy. 
See, that is what Palm Sunday is all about. Making sure that everyone knows who this is. And that's my desire this morning in my sermon. That you would embrace and know the biblical Jesus. Uh, Just any old Jesus won't do. Just saying the name and feeling good about the man that lived long ago is not enough. It has to be this Jesus. You need to have a childlike faith. You know, like the children in verse 15 who cried out to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. The question is, are you willing to do the same? Let's pray. Our Father, we hear these words and many of us have heard them over and over and, and have believed them and, 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 and do believe in you that you are the Messiah, that you have shown us mercy, that you are all-knowing, that you are king, that you are master, that you are a prophet who, who reveals truth to us, and yet we, we seem to uh, say it here on Sunday and not able to live it during the week. We pray that your spirit would move in our hearts as we contemplate how marvelous your son is. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.